Welcome to Korean True Crime with me, your host, Mimi Mizigo. In today's episode, we visit 1980s Gwangju, South Korea. Students had gathered to protest the declaration of martial law. They didn't firmly grasp what martial law truly would entail, but they knew they had to fight for their right to an education and freedom. They never could have foreseen the brutality that would ensue just hours later. Thank you to Vix Mack, Lala, Jay Colomo, Ben Jones, Ashley Rigby, William White, Suvibi Van Bremen, Blanca Blanca, Jiwon Edwards, Selkie, Nico, Elijah Hancock, Anominom, Dr. Bob, My96, Lumos, Emma Brown, and Audrey for their support on Patreon. Thank you for voting on today's episode topic. If you'd like to join my patrons, you'll receive ad-free early access episodes, weekly Korean true crime vocabulary hinting at the content of the next case, exclusive access to vote on future episode topics, and the occasional bonus content. There are no tiers, so all patrons gain access to everything. If you'd like to support me with your love, find me on most social media sites at Korean True Crime. Sources are available for free on Patreon. Warning, today's episode contains mentions of sexual assault and violence towards children. Listener discretion is advised. Today's episode goes into depth quite a bit about the political situation that led up to the Gwangju uprising in 1980. I hope I can paint a picture for you to understand the situation in which this event occurred in. So let's rewind to the preceding year, 1979. During this time, Korea was under the rule of President Park Chung-hee, who had held dictatorial control for 18 years. He had been in office as the president for 16 of those years. Park's rise to power began with his military background during the Korean War, which he leveraged to orchestrate a military coup in 1961, toppling the short-lived Second Republic of Korea. If you're not very well-versed in Korean history, the term Second Republic of Korea might be unfamiliar. After the division of Korea, the country went witnessed six significant shifts in its governmental structure. As of now, South Korea operates under its Sixth Republic, a setup that was established in 1987. Our focus, however, will be on the Fourth Republic, which was characterized by the conclusion of Park Chung-hee's authoritarian regime. After President Park Chung-hee's successful military coup, which led to his leadership of a military junta for a span of two years, 1961 and 1962, he eventually transitioned to a president presidential role through an election in 1963. His presidency marked the era of the Third Republic. While some perceived his rule to be an improvement over his predecessor, it remained authoritarian in nature. One of his most notable actions was his establishment of the Korean Central Intelligence Agency, or the Korean CIA, an organization that served as a feared tool for his domestic political suppression. His motives were ostensibly driven by an anti-communist stance. With the creation of the KCIA, the agency was able to arrest, torture, or wiretap anyone they deemed suitable targets without the need for court authorization. While some citizens within the nation applauded his leadership for propelling the creation of one of the globe's most rapidly expanding economies in history, the 
this support shifted dramatically with the arrival of the 1971 election. President Park Chung-hee found himself on the brink of losing to his rival, despite channeling a significant 10% of the country's national budget into his own campaign efforts. In the wake of this near defeat, everything changed. He swiftly took a stance against his own country and imposed martial law and enacted the Yushin Constitution. The Yushin Constitution bestowed upon him sweeping authority over the entire nation. This new constitution did away with direct voting in favor of delegates that he chose, removed presidential term restrictions, invested him with the power to both suspend the constitution and issue emergency decrees. Citizens immediately resisted this constitution, prompting him to counter with the issuance of emergency decrees. Those found displaying any form of opposition were arrested, often facing sentences of up to 15 years in prison. Throughout his long rule as a dictator, numerous protests and opposition efforts from citizens emerged, yet they were unable to achieve success in ending his rule until October 26, 1979. On that day, Park Chung-hee participated in a ceremonial ribbon-cutting event for a dam in Sapgyo with plans to visit a television broadcasting station in Dongjin. Accompanying President Park was Kim Jae-gyu, the director of KCIA, and Cha Ji-chul, his chief bodyguard. Bodyguard Cha had been appointed following the successful assassination of President Park's wife and the attempted assassination of Park himself in 1974. Due to lingering suspicions of assassination attempts, Cha was very weary of the KCIA director and adamantly insisted that no one else share the helicopter ride with President Park. This stance offended the director, who reacted by excusing himself from the entire day's trip. At the end of his schedule, he had a banquet at the secure KCIA safe house, which is within the presidential residence, commonly known as the Blue House. These banquets occurred approximately 10 times a month. Among the attendees of this one were President Park, KCIA Director Kim Jae-gyu, Chief Secretary Kim Gae-won, Chief Bodyguard Cha Ji-chul, as well as two young college-aged women, Shim Soo-bong, an emerging singer, and Shin Jae-soon, a drama student at Hanyang University. The four men had shared a long-standing acquaintance, their history intertwined through years of collaboration, including their involvement involvement in the military coup that propelled President Park to his position of power. Unknown at the time, this banquet would be their final night dining together. The two women were presented to President Park as entertainers for the evening, as was custom of his banquets. Shim Subang had visited before and was asked to sing as usual, and she, a survivor of this incident, recalls singing The Person Back Then, or Gure Gu Saram, a romantic song detailing a woman's desire to rekindle love with a man who got away. The song is forever marred by this moment in history, but it is a really beautiful song. During the entertainment, the group of men directed their discussion towards the escalating wave of anti-government protests happening throughout the nation. President Park expressed his discontent over the insufficient efforts by the KCIA to quell the demonstrations. Chief Bodyguard Cha chimed in, suggesting a severe response of, quote, 
mowing down the protesters with tanks, unquote. President Park continued the conversation by characterizing the protesters as impure elements and asserting the necessity of addressing the situation promptly. KCIA Director Kim, however, maintained his stance firmly, countering that these protesters and rioters should not bear the blame of President Park's diminishing support. Director Kim's brutal honesty sent President Park into a rage, who issued a stark warning to him. If the circumstances deteriorated any further, he would authorize the immediate shooting of protesters. In an odd reflection, he recounted historical instances where leaders had been executed under similar shoot-to-kill directives, yet he seemed to believe that his position rendered him immune to such consequences. Bodyguard Cha persisted in fueling the president's tirade, supplementing it by noting that even the Cambodian government, responsible for the deaths of 5 million of their own people, managed to retain their authority. In light of this, he questioned the significance of sacrificing one or two million Korean lives just to uphold their own rule. Director Kim stormed out of the room at 7.40 p.m. that evening after many unsuccessful attempts to steer the conversation away from the protest. Director Kim left and ordered his agents to shoot President Park's guards if they tried to enter the room. KCIA Director Kim Jae-gyu had, prior to this dinner, allegedly told Chief Secretary Kim Gae-won that he wanted to get rid of Chief Bodyguard Cha that evening. Director Kim retrieved his semi-automatic Walther PPK pistol and began firing at President Park and Chief Bodyguard Cha. He shot Cha in the arm and Park in the chest before his pistol jammed and he was forced to leave to find another weapon. Cha fled to the bathroom adjacent to the dining room while Kim was out of the room. The two women began to flee but stopped to try to help save the president. Director Kim asked Chief Secretary Kim to leave and secure the KCIA safe house. Director Kim returned to the room with a Smith & Wesson Model 36 revolver that he took from a subordinate and shot Cha in the abdomen. Singer Shim ran out of the room, but drama student Shin stayed with the injured president until Director Kim approached and demanded that she leave. President Park was left lying on the floor as Kim approached and allegedly spoke to the dying president by screaming at him, How how can you have such a miserable worm as your advisor, referring to Chief Bodyguard Cha, before shooting him in the head execution style behind his right ear? KCIA agents held the bodyguards at gunpoint and ordered them to surrender, hoping to prevent any further bloodshed, especially since these were their co-workers and friends. But when one guard attempted to reach for his gun, the two bodyguards were shot dead, and the gunshots triggered the execution of the last remaining bodyguard who was outside. In total, six people would be be killed. President Park, bodyguard Cha, three presidential bodyguards, and the chauffeur outside. Director Kim was arrested four hours later after he hailed a taxi outside of the Blue House. Korea remembers this incident uh, with very mixed emotions, as President Park was the leader who brought Korea's economy into what is known as an economic miracle, as Korea rose from one of the poorest nations to one of the fastest growing economies in the world. But the scars of President Park's treatment of his own citizens as expendable and controllable can never be forgotten. 
The assassination was determined to be an impulsive act of passion rather than a premeditated coup. Chief Security Kim was hanged for his role in the assassination, and all of the other participants were executed as well, either by hanging or firing squad. Despite suspicions, the government failed to substantiate a conspiracy involving the KCIA in the president's assassination. Amidst the chaotic aftermath of President Park's demise, a military officer named Chun Doo-wan came forward to seize control. With a prominent position in the Korean military, Chun capitalized on the ensuing power vacuum, leveraging the internal conflicts within both the government and the military. Employing a well-calculated political maneuver, he orchestrated a coup that paved the way for his ascent to the presidential role. On December 12, 1979, merely two months after President Park's assassination, Chun Doo-wan and No Tae-woo, who would later assume the presidency in 1988, orchestrated the apprehension of the Army Chief of Staff under allegations of collaborating with KCIA Director Kim to assassinate President Park. As the commander of defense security, Chun Doo-wan played a pivotal role in the investigation surrounding the president's assassination. Despite President Che's disapproval of the arrest, Chun remained undeterred and continued with his investigation. He commanded various army regiments and airborne brigades to descend upon downtown Seoul, a display intended to showcase their allegiance to Chun Doo-wan. This maneuver incited a sequence of riots and clashes within the capital city. Within the span of a single day, the Ministry of Defense and Army headquarters were seized, placing military control firmly in Chun Doo-wan's hands. Consequently, he emerged as the de facto leader of the nation. Over the next few months, he ascended to the rank of lieutenant general and ultimately ascended to the role of KCIA director in April 1980. Chun Doo-wan's ascendance to power was a meticulously calculated strategy that hinged on his manipulation and ambition. Exploiting the political instability prevalent within the nation, Chun strategically forged alliances, consolidated his influence within the military, and opportunistically leveraged President Park's assassination to his personal advantage. Chun Doo-wan's maneuvers were met with very mixed reactions. While some were hopeful and rallied, protested for him as a potential stabilizing force for the country to get back on track economically, others saw just another authoritarian ruler. Tensions rose in the nation as people demanded democratic reform. In the city of Gwangju, which is situated in the southwestern reaches of the nation, a singular event started a sweeping surge of defiance. Gwangju found itself in the middle of protests started by widespread dissatisfaction with the government's control. Having endured years of political suppression under Park's regime, the nation's economic advancement came at the expense of their personal and political liberties. As General Chun Doo-wan solidified his authority following President Park's assassination, citizens became increasingly apprehensive about his motives and his actions, fearing the emergence of yet another autocratic ruler. The nationwide protests were a collective outcry for the return of their liberties and agency over the country after the last agonizing century. Throughout the prior century, Korea had weathered Japanese colonization spanning from 1910 to 1945, the division of North and South Korea in 1948, and the harrowing Korean War that raged from 1950 to 1953. The sustained state of instability inflicted generations with lasting trauma and completely destroyed the housing and industrial infrastructure of the nation. Despite this, the following rulers, 
Isang Man, Park Chung-hee, and the rise of Chan Tu-hwan presided over authoritarian regimes, compounding citizens' fatigue and apprehension. The people grew fearful of enduring repression and manipulation for the next decade. People all across Korea vehemently opposed Chan Tu-hwan's takeover of military control. In the immediate aftermath of President Park's assassination, before Chan Tu-hwan rose to power, citizens held great optimism that this would spell the end of authoritarian regimes, finally ushering in an era of functional democracy. However, those hopes were shattered on May 17, 1980, when Chan Duan quashed their expectations by extending a previously limited version of martial law. If you're unfamiliar with the term martial law, martial law is temporary rule by military power. Typically, martial law occurs in states of emergencies. It also temporarily suspends legal protections of civilians. This expanded martial law proclamation rendered political engagement illegal, resulted in the closure of all education facilities, including universities, and silenced the National Assembly. Students were among some of the more outspoken people who protested this martial law because they desperately worried about their futures. As the morning of May 18th unfolded, students congregated at the entrance of Chanan National University, protesting the institution's closure because of the martial law. By 9.30 a.m., a gathering of over 200 students and civilians had formed, uniting in front of the school to voice their dissent. However, many students were unclear about the practical implications of martial law. At this time, approximately eight soldiers positioned themselves against the students, ready to suppress the protest. At around 10 a.m., the crowd grew to include about 30 soldiers and over 600 students and civilian protesters. The soldiers were armed with rifles, crowd control grenades. Their firearms were also fitted with bayonets. With the acknowledgement of the United States military, which retained operational control over both U.S. and Korean forces since the Korean War, Chun Doo-won dispatched elite paratroopers from the special forces to Gwangju to end the protest. The arrival of these elite troops marked the onset of a brutal and infamous phase in the suppression of the Gwangju uprising. The terrifying presence of heavily armed elite soldiers did not, however, end the protest. Instead, it kindled the flames and rallied even more citizens to join their cause. The chant of end martial law was heard throughout the streets. At 11 a.m., soldiers entered a study room adjacent to Chunnam National University, a place where high school students could prepare for college entrance exams. The soldiers proceeded to forcefully remove students from the room, subjecting them to brutal beatings with police clubs. This violence seemed inexplicable. The students were independently studying, a necessity after the president's decree shut down their schools. The soldiers expanded their attacks to include anyone who appeared to be a student or associate with the protest. The soldiers' violence began to escalate, prompting the protesters to change locations. They moved to the provincial office situated in a well-known downtown area called Kum Nam No. As the citizens attempted to fend off the soldiers, the dynamic of the situation changed significantly. At around 3.30 p.m., a reporter witnessed seeing a soldier throw a bayonet at a demonstrator attempting to flee. Thankfully, they were not hit. Survivors fled from the soldiers throwing tear gas grenades into the crowds. By 4 p.m., a notable transformation had occurred in the soldiers' behavior. They were thirsty for blood. A mass of 2,000 citizens had assembled to protest 
just facing off against over 680 soldiers. Although exact participant numbers vary, estimates suggest that the demonstration, along with those observing, numbered anywhere between 600 and 2,000 individuals at this time. By 4.30 p.m., South Korean soldiers indiscriminately clubbed and beat demonstrators and bystanders alike. They used their bayonets to attack and torture demonstrators. Soldiers also extended this by raiding buildings completely unrelated to the protests, including hotels, hair salons, cafes, and stores. These led to the forceful extraction of individuals from these establishments, subjecting pretty much anyone to beatings on the streets. The first recorded casualty that day was a 29-year-old deaf man named Kim Gyeong-chol who tragically lost his life despite merely being a bystander. He was pulled out of a coffee shop, bound with rope, subjected to severe head injuries, and tossed into an army truck where he would pass away. A woman who accompanied him pleaded and screamed for his life, vouching that he was not part of the protests and he was not a student. However, she too was beaten to the ground. The violent crackdown on the protests prompted a rapid surge in participation, escalating to 10,000 individuals within the next two days. The soldiers' actions weren't confined to the protest sites alone. They forcibly entered people's homes as well. Among the survivors willing to testify, 17 women came forward following the Gwangju uprising, disclosing that they had been sexually assaulted at gunpoint during the soldiers' rampage. It's crucial to acknowledge that these accounts represent only those who are willing to come forward, leaving the true extent of these incidents potentially underestimated. A survivor remembers hearing an old man cry out, How is this happening? I saw brutal Japanese cops during the colonial period. I saw communists during the Korean War. And I've never seen cruelty like this. Another survivor remembers fighting in the Vietnam War and had never seen such brutality as this. He witnessed children being beat to death in the streets. As dawn came on May 19th, an eerie calm settled over the city. The streets and roads bore witness to the aftermath of violence marked by blood. Within the military's internal language, this event was termed a, quote, fascinating vacation. Across the city, voices were sounded, airing grievances and demands. Above all, citizens called for an apology for the prior day's violence. In the heart of downtown Kumnamno, a sit-down demonstration began to unfold. By 10 a.m., a crowd of over 4,000 had assembled. They observed as soldiers established cordons and checkpoints while military trucks rolled in. Soldiers stood with bayonets affixed and aimed at the demonstrators. Any students attempting to enter the college grounds were met with beatings. Overhead, helicopters circled. The scene was a sight to behold. The military, terrified of the power students had in merely protesting. Anger grew, as did sorrow amongst the protesters. At 11 a.m., a student who defied the soldiers by entering the school was paraded before the protesters, stripped naked and subjected to a beating to humiliate him. The violence persisted as soldiers began to leap off of the trucks, move into the crowd, and mercilessly strike citizens with their heavy clubs, showing no concern for the elderly, young students, or bystanders. Tear gas once again was thrown into the crowd. At this point, it was one-sided. 
Some courageous citizens threw stones, and others who had anticipated further violence would arrive later with prepared Molotov cocktails. People threw pieces of flower pots and bricks at the armed soldiers. They tried to barricade the street by using broken telephone booths that they tore down with their hands. By 4.30 p.m., the police station was burned down. As the building was overtaken by flames, a shot rang through the air. A soldier from an armored vehicle that had been overtaken by protesters had shot into the crowd, killing a demonstrator. Massacre is the only word that can be used to describe what happened next. This was the first casualty by gunfire. Citizens saw the smiles on soldiers' faces as they pulled the bodies to the sides of the road. It was disturbingly apparent that these soldiers took pleasure in the trampling and killing of their fellow citizens. Initially, it appeared that men bore the brunt of the brutal attacks with clubs, but as the events unfolded, it became evident that women and young girls had become prime targets. Army men chased women down, stripped them of their clothing by using their bayonets, cutting their shirts and skirts using the knives. These soldiers specifically aimed at their genitals, breasts, and abdomens, inflicting blows with their clubs and subjecting them to stomps from booted feet. A survivor bore witness to a woman being stripped and her head repeatedly slammed against a wall until she was seemingly lifeless. After that, her body was carelessly tossed into a soldier's truck. The memory of the soldiers wiping blood off their hands and callously joking about the inhumane actions forever etched itself into this witness's memory. The motive behind why these women were singled out for such torment remains incomprehensible. They were merely protesting for the reopening of their school, seeking to continue their education. The sheer brutality of these events serves to brand this uprising as one of the most egregious in history. Survivors of this horrific incident would come to refer to it as human hunting. During the uprising, soldiers weren't acting as soldiers. Instead, they had transformed into bloodthirsty hunters. Certainly, some soldiers eventually stepped forward, compelled by immense shame for their participation, to shed light on some of the events and provide an accurate portrayal of what happened. These accounts aim to reveal a more comprehensive understanding of the uprising. The soldiers were under orders to break the spirits of protesters through any available means, regardless of the method's cruelty. A common strategy that they used was forcibly stripping the protesters, rendering them naked and humiliated. In an attempt to prevent the captured citizens from fleeing, soldiers would tie their hands behind their backs using their belts and force them to hold their clothes in their constrained hands. The captured protesters were forced to line up with their hands tied behind their back, naked, holding their own clothes, and step onto army trucks, which are much too high for a capacitated person to step onto. The citizens would help each other onto the trucks by pushing the person in front of them with their head because they knew if someone fell, they'd just be subjected to more beatings. After they were on the trucks, they were taken to nearby sports complexes where they were herded together and subjected to even more beatings. All while this is happening, the rest of Korea remained largely oblivious to what was happening in Gwangju. A comprehensive media blackout was imposed and communication systems encompassing phone and internet access were abruptly severed within the city. An effective veil of silence enveloped the incident, with strict prohibition against reporting about the incident. However, on May 20th, journalists convened in a bid to document the extent of the casualties. Yet, this task proved futile as they encountered insurmountable obstacles. Their reporting was confined to narratives favoring the police and the soldiers. 
The official narrative reported only four police officers and two soldiers had been killed, while the number of deceased civilians remained uncounted. By 7 p.m. on May 20th, citizens came together using buses, trucks, and even taken military vehicles to erect roadblocks. The next day, on May 21st, citizens' frustration turned towards the press, leading to the hurling of bricks and stones towards journalists, a display of their dissatisfaction with the media's biased portrayals. They recognized that the press was more likely to spotlight their perceived wrongdoings while favoring President Chan Duan. Meanwhile, soldiers were positioned on rooftops, their guns trained on any sign of movement. The narrative of these events was meticulously documented and safeguarded by both journalists and brave citizens who jeopardized their safety to bear witness to the daily occurrences in the Provincial Hall area. These invaluable accounts would have remained undisclosed under the constraints of the martial law regulations. During this time, Prime Minister Park reported that a few impure elements in society attacked public property and set fire to it, stole weapons, and fired guns at the army. However, the military was not permitted to fire back. Such were the government orders. The problem mainly lay with those minority impure elements and rioters with weapons in their hands. You can see how the media distorted the situation heavily, completely falsifying what was occurring. This fabricated narrative was the sole information accessible to people residing in other regions of the country. Remarkably, the media portrayed this as an enraged, irrational mob wreaking havoc in Guangzhou. The next phase of the upper was distinguished by a surge in mass participation during the days following May 18th. Over the course of the uprising, the number of individuals taking part in the demonstrations surged to an estimate of 100,000 people, according to historians. The significance of this participation cannot be overstated, as it served as the pivotal factor in preventing the military's ending of the demonstration. What made the uprising particularly noteworthy was its inclusive nature. It transcended social groups. It managed to unify a remarkably diverse array of people against their own government. These distinct groups were exposed to different media, propaganda, and they all entered the protests with unique perspectives of life. Many of those who ultimately joined the demonstrations might not have initially intended to participate. However, a shared anger towards the government's brutal treatment of protesting students acted as a unifying force. It's essential to highlight that the participants in the Guangzhou uprising deliberately refrained from destroying, damaging, or targeting private property. Their focus remained solely on government-owned assets and vehicles, and they even endeavored to safeguard local shops from harm. This isn't intended to pass judgment on the occurrence of property damage during uprisings, but rather to emphasize the rarity of a large assembly of angry people who don't resort to looting or exploiting chaos. Keep in mind that the soldiers targeted anyone in proximity, which minimized, if not got rid of, any opportunities for looting, and the soldiers themselves were looting local shops. On May 22nd, the army had blocked all routes out of the city as they retreated to the outskirts. On May 23rd, a bus full of citizens tried to escape by driving through a checkpoint, but were stopped by soldiers' fire. 15 of the 18 passengers were murdered. Two of these passengers were executed after the bus crashed. The next day, May 24th, Jun Jae-su, an 11-year-old boy, was playing with his friends near his elementary school. When soldiers began firing at them and other citizens in 
in the area, the boys scattered. Jun's rubber school shoe fell off and he ran back to retrieve it when bullets from an M16 pierced his chest twice and his left thigh. He died. Later that same day, 11-year-old Bang Guan Bum was bathing and swimming in the Wanjie Reservoir when he was spotted exiting the water by a soldier. Bang was shot through the left side of his head, execution style, by an M16. The government would try to say that Bang was believed to be a teenage student attempting to flee the city across the reservoir. It's doubtful that anyone could be close enough to shoot an 11-year-old boy in the back of the head and not realize they were a child. The military's gravest error took place on May 24th at 1.55 p.m. when the 63rd Special Operations Battalion of the Airborne Brigade and the Training Battalion of the CATC Army Infantry School mistakenly engaged in fire against one another, erroneously believing each other to be civilians. This incident resulted in the death of 13 soldiers. Following this, they proceeded to indiscriminately target unarmed civilians alongside engaging in looting and destroying stores. To uphold their narrative, the deceased soldiers were counted amongst the victims attributed to the so-called rioters. The demonstrators were hard at work liberating their city and created the Citizen Settlement Committee and Student Settlement Committee. The groups were led by a roster of qualified individuals, including lawyers, professors, military veterans, and preachers. These groups initiated contact with the army to initiate negotiation. Their demands included the release of all armed citizens, compensation for victims, and a pledge against retaliatory actions offered in exchange for the disarmament of militias. The Student Settlement Committee took on responsibilities such as funeral arrangements, traffic management, medical assistance, and public awareness campaigns. However, the negotiations reached an impasse as the Army insisted on the immediate, unconditional disarmament of all militias. By May 26th, the military had devised a plan to re-enter Guangzhou to confront the formed militias. In response, civilians resorted to lying down on the streets, effectively blocking the roads and sacrificing themselves as martyrs for the cause of liberating the people. Unfortunately, many of these brave individuals faced beatings, fatalities, or arrest. The next day, May 27th, Operation Songmu Chengzheng, also known as Operation Martialism and Loyalty, was enacted. This operation mobilized soldiers equipped with M16 rifles and stun grenades. These troops employed camouflage, positioning themselves on rooftops and within buildings. Within a span of two hours, the soldiers managed to stop the civil protesters and effectively end the uprising. Unfortunately, the Guangzhou uprising concluded on a very bleak note. In the aftermath of the uprising, the government apprehended around 1,400 people, imposing death sentences on seven of the leaders of the demonstrations and life sentences on 12 others. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Overall, an estimated 200,000 people participated in the protests. They faced off against approximately 3,000 soldiers and 18,000 police officers. 
There is no official death toll for the Guangzhou uprising because as the massacre went on, bodies were buried in unmarked graves, bodies were carted off to old cemeteries outside of the city, and they even transported bodies with garbage trucks just to add to the disrespect. Some records show that 165 people were murdered during the massacre more than 60% of whom were under the age of 30 and 20% of whom were between 18 and 10. The government's death toll, including soldiers, sits at 193. But anyone who attempted to dispute these figures were also liable to be arrested for spreading false information. So when the Guangzhou uprising was reevaluated more than two decades later, the death toll can now only be estimated to be closer to 1,000 to 2,000 people with 1,800 to 3,500 wounded civilians. 76 reported victims' bodies are still missing. In May of 2020, 40 years after the uprising, the Truth Commission was founded to investigate the crackdown and use of military force in history. It has led to the discovery of many of the newer footage and information that has come to light about the massacre. Finally, as of July 2021, at the request of the South Korean government, U.S. Department of State declassified documents revealing that a U.S. ambassador was informed of the plans of the army to use violence against the protesters prior to it taking place. These documents revealed that the U.S. ambassador expressed concerns over growing anti-American sentiments in South Korea and the Gwangju area specifically. Prior to this document's declassification, the U.S. denied foreknowledge of the government's actions. President Chun Doo-hwan faced several more small-scale democratic movements during his presidency, but would continue his autocratic rule until 1997. The events of 1980 ignited a flame that would ultimately contribute to a broader pro-democracy movement reshaping the course of South Korean history. It's crucial to take a moment and reflect on the profound impact of the Gwangju uprising. The events that unfolded in May 1980 in the city of Gwangju resonate far beyond the pages of history. This bloody history serves as a stark reminder of the complexities of power, resilience, and the power of our communities. The Gwangju uprising wasn't just a moment of unrest, it was a testament of the strength of ordinary citizens who dared to stand up against injustice and oppression. Their collective voice, their unwavering commitment to change, and their sacrifices paid the way for a broader pro-democracy movement that would eventually transform the nation. In a world where voices are sometimes stifled and injustices persist, the Guangzhou Uprising serves as a beacon of courage and a call to action. It teaches us that ordinary people, when united by a shared vision and determination, can create profound change. It reminds us that in the face of adversity, we must stand up for what is right, even if it seems impossible to achieve. As always, thank you for listening to Korean True Crime. I hope you enjoyed today's episode topic. If you'd like to vote on future episode topics, join Korean True Crime's Patreon today. If you'd like to hear more, follow the show wherever you listen and be sure to leave a review. If you'd like to send me feedback, find me on all social media sites at Korean True Crime. See you next time.